This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Anthropology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Reagan Gillum, a host on the channel, and today I'm talking to Dr. Trent Masiki, who is the author of the book, The Afro-Latino Memoir, Race, Ethnicity, and Literary Interculturalism, published by the University of North Carolina Press. Dr. Masiki, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Reagan. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk about your book. Um, and I wanted to start with you as the author. And so the book, uh, The Afro-Latino Memoir, examines the relations between Afro-Latinos and African-Americans through the lens of memoir. And so I wondered if you could just tell us about yourself, um, anything about your background and how you came to write this book. Yeah, sure. So uh, I've lived and taught in New England for nearly half my life at this point but I was uh, born and raised uh, in the Deep South. And um, my scholarly interest in Afro-Latino and African-American interculturalism is kind of rooted in my uh, personal background. Uh, as someone who's half Ugandan and half African-American, you know, I've always um, been fascinated by these uh, cross-cultural relationships between African-Americans and other Afro-ethnic communities in the U.S. So, you know, that's kind of how my personal interest kind of um, alliance with my scholarly interest and uh, background as far as like uh, credentials. Uh, I have a bachelor's of science in computer science from Southern University and HBCU uh, in Louisiana, my home state. Um, a master's in English from Texas A&M University, an MFA in creative, creative writing from uh, Emerson College and uh, an MA and a PhD in Afro-American studies from UMass Amherst. Mm-hmm. Wow, that is fascinating. Um, I, I like that uh, you brought your your background into it because this topic is also close to my heart and that I'm very interested in these relationships. I, I am African-American, but I'm interested in these relationships between African-Americans and other ethnic groups, um, which is one thing that really interested me in your book. And so, you know, in the book, Uh, You argue, and I'm quoting you, that Afro-Latino coming-of-age memoirs written in the post-segregation era expand not only on what is meant and has meant to be Latino in the U.S., but also what it means it has meant to be African-American. And so I wondered if you can expand on this argument that you're making in the book and and just give us a sense of who you're referring to with the term Afro-Latino. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that question. So in this project, I use... Afro, the term Afro-Latino to describe U.S. citizens uh, and or U.S. residents 
who either have like ethnic or national roots in the Spanish speaking regions and countries of Latin America, the Caribbean and, and North America. And I understand and use um, the terms Latino and Afro-Latino in the same way um, that scholars like Agustin Lamontes, Juan Flores and Miriam Jimenez Ramon, um, William uh, Lewis, Silvio Torres Sayon, and uh, Marta Camanero Santa Angelo, you know, understand and use those terms. And the term Latino in the U.S. is is often used as a way is often used in a way that kind of either marginalizes or erases the African contribution to Latino history, culture, and um, personhood. But in the like late '90s and early 2000s the term uh, Afro-Latino gained a lot more popularity and uh, currency among scholars in the kind of general public. And so, um, you know, that's, I think, what we're seeing now, particularly after the um, 2010 publication of uh, Juan Flores and Miriam Jimenez Ramon's uh, book, The Afro-Latino Reader, you just saw this explosion, you know, of scholarship focusing on the Afro-Latino experience. And I think their scholarship in general, and then that book in particular inspired um, emerging scholars like myself, you know, who started our doctoral, um, entered our doctoral programs in and around 2011. Um, so that's, you know, kind of like how I understand the term and, you know, the influences and the people, the scholars that have uh, influenced my work. And you're talking about expanding. So what I mean by expand, um, I think these memoirs, the Afro-Latino coming of age memoirs, they expand what it means to be Latino because they unsettle that notion I was just talking about um, as Latino being someone who is like of mestizo descent, someone who's like solely um, a combination of Spanish and indigenous heritage. And I think these same memoirs, the Afro-Latino memoir, expands what it means to be African-American um, because they show or they demonstrate that Black identity uh, in the U.S. is more interculturally uh, entangled and ethnically diverse than it's typically represented like in the popular imagination and popular culture. So um, that's the work that I think that the, um, that the book and the term uh, is doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is really fascinating. Um, and you look at, you know, a series of memoirs in the book and we're, we're going to talk about, you know, a couple of them, but, you know, one of the things you examine in the book are cultural tropes that overlap between Afro-Latinos and African-Americans. And I was, I was fascinated because you write about this idea of like a literary ancestry. Um, and so you look at it, for example, in Piri Thomas's memoir. And so I wondered, um, what is a literary and what is literary ancestry and how did Afro-Latinos assert it with African-Americans? So literary ancestry is a, um, uh, a metaphor, and it's a metaphor that was developed by the novelist uh, Ralph Ellison, who wrote Invisible Man. And he used this metaphor uh, to describe his theory of literary influence. And he develops this idea. You can find it in two essays. Um, it's in his uh, essay collection, Shadow and Act. And he mentions or he talks about this uh, concept of literary relatives and literary ancestors in on one essay that's called The World in a Jug, and then another one, uh, Hidden Name and Complex Fate. And he wrote these two essays. Uh, he wrote the first one in December of 1963, and he wrote the second one uh, in January of 1964. And so he makes this distinction between literary relatives and literary ancestors. And relatives 
for Ellison or novelists or who are either like his peers or his competitors, you know, like his equals or his rivals and ancestors are novelists that he considers who are more talented that he is, you know, novelists from whom, you know, he can learn something about the world himself and the craft of writing. And uh, so he has this quote, and it's a quote that I use on uh, page 38 of the book. While one can do nothing about choosing one's relatives, one can, as artists, choose one's ancestors. And so Ellison, you know, in um, the first essay, The World in a Jug, he claims um, Richard Wright and Langston Hughes as literary relatives. Um, but he claims Ernest Hemingway, T.S. Eliot, Andre Malraux, Dostoevsky, and uh, William Faulkner as ancestors. So there's a... Um, on a racial element, uh, I guess, to that as well, between the distinction between relatives and ancestors. So I chose that concept, and, you know, it's a concept that's really part of uh, African-American literary studies because it really um, demonstrates the relationship between Peary Thomas and John Oliver Killens. You know, Peary Thomas read John Oliver Killens' novel, Youngblood, when Thomas, when he, Peary Thomas, was incarcerated. Um, and that novel, it just, it changed his life. He, he read it and he's like, this is what I want to do with the rest of my life. I want to write. And he started writing his uh, manuscript, um, the manuscript that would become down these mean streets in jail. And when he got out uh, of, of prison and he found and he had this opportunity, got the opportunity to turn the manuscript into a book, uh, he sought out John Oliver Killens, who's one of the five, mem five founding members of the Harlem Writers Guild. And he joined the guild, Thomas did, and became tight very, very close friends with Killens, and Killens helped promote his work um, in magazines like Negro Digest. Um, so that's another longer story to that part. That particular issue of Negro Digest, in which uh, Killens wrote the, the very glowing essay of Down These Mean Streets, that was the January 1968 issue of Negro Digest, which was devoted to theorizing the Black aesthetic. So right at the very, you know, um, moment when the Black aesthetic is being conceptualized and theorized, uh, you have this Afro-Latino presence in that, in, that, uh, in that literary journal. Yeah, yeah, and that's so important, I think, with the book, because one of the things you're doing is making, uh, inserting Afro-Latinos there at these, at these critical moments um, to, to give us a sense that they didn't just appear, you know, 10 years ago or something. They, they've, <laughs> you know, they've, they've been there contributing <laughs> Uh, culturally and literarily um, for, for quite some time. Uh, so that was something I really appreciated about the book um, and the, you know, that archival work that you were doing. Um, and I think too, so you, you give us this like overarching idea to understand the relations between Afro-Latino writers and African-Americans. And I really wanted to foreground this because it seems like one of, one of the critical contributions of the book, uh, which is this idea of eth ethno-racial apprenticeship. And it means, quote, and I'm quoting you, the intersectional process of ethnic and racial social socialization that we each experience as individuals as we come of age in our homelands. And so I wondered if you could talk about um, this idea of ethno-racial apprenticeship and how you see it unfolding um, with these memoirs. So I chose that term, um, ethno-racial apprenticeship, because it um, it connects to this idea of the coming-of-age narrative or the coming of age, you know, novel, but also coming of age memoirs, because the coming of age novel, another, another name for the coming of age novel is the apprenticeship novel. And so, and by apprenticeship, you know, in this type of life writing or that type of uh, coming of age 
narrative arc, you know, it charts a, a protagonist's growth from childhood to adulthood. And so you see this kind of intellectual, emotional, psychological, professional, artistic maturity, maturation, you know, from uh, childhood to adult, how they come into their, into themselves. So that's one of the reasons, uh, you know, I chose that, that concept of apprenticeship because it matched the actual genre that I'm writing about. So the memoirs that I write about are coming of age narratives and each of the writers explores the, uh, the trauma of the racial identity crisis that they experienced in their formative teenage and young adult years. And for Afro-Latino writers, their understanding of what Afro-Latino writers in the U.S., you know, their understanding of what it means to be black, you know, here in America is deeply influenced um, by their African-American peers, their teachers, their mentors, uh, romantic partners, as well as their engagement with African-American you know, music, literature, religion, history, and culture. And so their racial identity, um, to add to that, their racial identity is intersectional because it's also influenced by their gender, their sexuality, and the kind of historical period and geographical region region, uh, in which they're born. So for me, that's, you know, what ethno-racial apprenticeship speaks to. It speaks to this fact that we're racially and ethnically socialized in our formative years, um, but the, a similar process also occurs no matter what age we are uh, when we immigrate to another country and we have to learn the, um, the ethnic and the racial logic and grammar of that particular country. And that was something that was uh, important for me to learn and experience when I was, um, I spent a year, me and my family spent a year in Panama when I um, um, was there as a Fulbright scholar. So um that's why I think those those two things are, are, are bound. We each are socialized in the countries that we grew up into, but if we also immigrate to another country, you have to kind of redo that process as well. Yeah. Yeah, it's like this process of continual change and flow. Um, definitely taking on those influences that you're that you're confronting in the moment. Um and you and you talk about these interactions and relations between these two groups. Um, but there are, there weren't always like these like utopian moments, you know, they weren't, they weren't all smooth and free from tension and, um, between Afro Latinos and African Americans. And for example, you talk about in Marta Moreno Vega's memoir, which I think is when the spirits, uh, dance Mambo, right. Mm -hmm. Um, she writes about her sister's relationship, you know, with an African American and, um, and so that's just one example, but I wondered, can you, can you talk about some of the tensions, um, in this relation between African Americans and Afro Latinos, you know, as you saw them in these memoirs? Yeah. So that's a great one to uh, start with. Uh, so Chachita's uh, Vega's sister was supposed to, uh, spend seven weeks at a summer camp working as a counselor. And instead of going to summer camp, uh, what she did was spend seven weeks with her secret boyfriend. And that secret boyfriend was uh, Joe Singleton, and he was a a light-skinned, unemployed African-American man. And the important thing to know about Vega's family, uh, about her parents, is that they were uh, socially and ethnically uh, conservative. Uh, And that's to say that they wanted their daughters to only date men whom the daughters intended to marry. They were traditional in that respect. And additionally, they wanted those men. And here I'm going to you know, quote from the um, from the book um, 
from that particular chapter. I think it's on page 96. They wanted those men to be light-skinned, have good hair, come from a good family, and be Puerto Rican. So Vega's parents felt betrayed and um, dishonored, you know, when they discovered that Chachita had lied to them and spent the summer, you know, in a romantic relationship. Now, in defending her actions, uh, Vega's sister, you know, tried to stress the fact that Joe was just as light-skinned as they were. <clears throat> but her parents, um, and she thought that their parents would be more upset about, you know, her dating someone who was dark-skinned uh, rather than someone who was uh, not Puerto Rican. Um, and so she was trying to kind of offset uh, or defend herself with uh, the claim that he was just as light as they were. But that, you know, was not the only problem, the problem that he was, that he was not Puerto Rican was the bigger hurdle uh, for them to get over. Yeah. The stories in the book were, were fascinating um, for, for what they demonstrated, but also in looking at the, in the lives of the characters. Um, and so reading through it was, it was interesting to me because I was reading these memoirs for the first time. Um, I'd never even um, really heard about them. And so it was an introduction both to the memoir and then to your analysis of the memoir. So that was really, um, that was really fascinating. Well, that's what um, I was, I was, that's one of the things I was hoping to do with the project is to bring more attention to these memoirs that have been neglected, not only in Latino studies, but also in African-American studies, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, neglected in um, Latino studies um, because there's such a focus because, you know, they're, they're Afro-Latino memoirs and, in, and neglected in African-American studies, I think, because we don't tend to read outside of our own tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, and as we were talking about before in the, in the last question, there's just a lot of overlap between these communities, uh, you know, Afro-Latino communities and African-American communities, which you know, I can talk more about, you know, later. Oh, if you, if you want, you can talk. Do you want to talk about it now? Yeah, I just think these folks, you know, they don't, um, as this, uh, the chapter we're just talking about, uh, um, Vegas sister's marriage to Joe Singleton, you know, indicates, um, you know, people don't live strictly in these ethnic silos. Um, and so that, but I think we do, I think we do our uh, students, our profession, um, a disservice when we teach and write about them as if they did live in these ethnic silos. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think I, I agree. I agree. Um, and it, it, cause it can provide us with a more expansive idea of, as you were saying, like expand our ideas of what it means to be black. Right. Um, with these different, you know, when you bring, the, when you bring these different communities into conversation and into, um, relation because they are, are already, are already in relation. Um, you can see that. Yeah, and Vega's a Vega's a, a perfect text um, to that illustrates that. You know, she talks even more about how the the dance and music culture in New York at the time, where you have these two communities uh, interacting at, uh, in the same dance and music spaces. So, mm-hmm. a very very rich history uh, that she outlines uh, in that memoir. Mm-hmm. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, yeah, I, th- I thought that too, as, as I was reading too, I thought this is, this is sort of bringing these memoirs back, I think, into our like public consciousness um, to sort of, I'm sure they had a life when they were published and to kind of revive them again and, and have us reconsider them anew and what they were telling us about Afro-Latino identity then and, you know, what they can help us think about now as well. Um, and so I wanted to ask too, because you're very careful to say that uh, you don't want to suggest that African-Americans are stewards of black identity. Um, and you write, nor do I intend to suggest that the relationship between African-Americans and other people of African descent is one of tutelage. Um, and I thought this was really important because many times bringing African-Americans together with other black communities, it becomes difficult to navigate this question of, I, I usually frame it as African-American hegemony. Um, and so I wondered like how you're thinking about this um, within, within this project or how you navigate this uh, possible issue. Well, let, let me start with the uh, point that you made about African-American hegemony. Um, Lorja, Lorja Garcia-Bena um, points out in her book, um, Translating Blackness, Latinx Colonialities and Global Perspective, um, she points out, she calls it hegemonic blackness. Mm-hmm. And she points out that it has its cons and, of course, it has its pros. Um, so on one hand, it uh, dominates alternative uh, expressions and experiences of blackness. But on the other hand, it's strategically useful because it provides, as she argues, a lingua franca uh, that fosters global black diasporic uh, solidarities. And to the other part of your question, I think the best thing to do when bringing African-Americans together with other black communities um, is to acknowledge rather than minimize uh, the tensions that can exist uh, between and among those groups. And I think community and thought leaders have to do that work before, during, and after bringing those groups together. And what comes to mind to me is uh, recently a talk uh, in November, uh, Tanya uh, Kateri Hernandez was at Clark University, you know, here in Worcester, uh, where I live and teach. And she was, a, uh, I teach at WPI, Worcester Polytechnic Institute, but she was uh, speaking at Clark University. And she was discussing her uh, latest book, Racial Innocence, Unmasking Latino anti, Anti-Black Bias and the Struggle for Equality. And uh, the talk in the Q&A session, I mean, it was just phenomenal. Um, the open and the candid engagement between her and the audience, uh, and the audience included Latinos, Afro-Latinos, and African-Americans. Um, it's the best talk I've been to in a while. And, um, you know, and the group uh, continued, uh, a small number of us continued the conversations that we we're having, you know, in that Q&A uh, afterwards at dinner. So I think the work that, uh, you know, Lorge is doing and that uh, uh, Tanya is doing in our new book, we have to have more of that. Um, also, you know, it kind of comes to mind about bridging the, the tensions like we're talking about in the talking about um, in the previous question, you know, I just finished teaching in my last term, um, a course called African American political thought. And the students, you know, in that course, they read and listen to an excerpt from a Malcolm X's speech message to the grassroots. And what they learn from the speech is that um, black people have more to gain by organizing around their common oppression than they do about arguing, um, than they do about arguing about their uh, ethnic, religious and you know, social and political differences. And 
you know, going back to Lorge's point, because anti-blackness is a global phenomenon, it becomes pragmatic, if not essential, for us to organize um, around one's common oppression. And I think, you know, that's the message that the students take away from a message to the grassroots. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's I love that um, that that idea of of teaching that um, teaching that that article and or that that speech. I'm sorry, and and what you were saying about uh, Lorgia Pena, and I think in your book too, you kind of I, I like how you give us these very like concrete examples of you know it's not just sort of a you know here here's how to be black, right? It's it's really a like you know, I'm trying to write this story and, you know, can, can you help me, you know, give me feedback and things like that. Um, so sometimes when you, um, bring us down into like the everyday social relations of the, of it, it becomes not that, not that you can get away from the tension, but it it becomes less about, you know, you're trying to put on me this, this way of being black and more about, we're both trying to figure out the best way to, to help, help you tell your story. Um, yeah, that that collectivism is is important. I mean, it's important to move forward forward because it's a it's a global struggle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so I wonder too. You you kind of answered this a little bit, but I had this other question of how you see the book relating to sort of the current moment in scholarly communities and the socio political context. Um, and by that I mean sort of the rise in Afro Latin studies the increasing acknowledgement of people of African descent, both in Latin America, but also like increasing black consciousness among, among Afro-Latinos and, and just not even just the consciousness, because I think consciousness has been there, but just the visibility that it's, mm. that it's getting. Um, and so I wonder just how you think about your book um, or your work in relation to some of these, these latest like sociopolitical events. Yeah. So in the, um, the early 2000s, several several years before I entered my doctoral program, which which I entered in 2011, you know, Augustine Lamontes he wrote an article calling for scholars to bridge the gap between Latino and African American studies. And later, um, you know, I was as I was doing my doctoral work, you know, I read that article and that really resonated with me. And my book is essentially just a response uh, to that call. And the Afro-Latino memoir is uh, unique, I think, because it examines, uh, you know, as we were saying before, a marginalized population in Latino studies who are writing about, who are writing in a marginalized genre in literary studies. And so I hope, you know, what my book can do is inspire more comparative uh, scholarship and more collaboration between scholars in Latino and African-American studies. And, you know, as I was saying before, the people, you know, that I'm right about, that I write about, they didn't live in ethnic silos. And so trying to bring those stories and recover those stories for this next generation of, of students, but also the next generation of scholars in, uh, in Afro-Latino studies, I think is important because those memoirs, as, as you said, they had a life, you know, in their time. Um, and then we just, they don't, some of them don't get canonized. You know, Piri Thomas, of course, of the four or five people that I write about, there are four chapters in the book, but of the five people I write about, uh, Thomas is the, is the book that is canonical, right? So there's Carlos Moore's memoir. There's uh, Marta Morena Vegas, uh, Raquel Cepeda, um, and Veronica Chambers. And so these these books have a lot to offer, but I think with this new, this new wave of scholarship and interest 
in Afro-Latino studies, I think these books are going to get, um, uh, enough, their shelf life is going to be renewed. Mm -hmm. so that, that's what I'm hoping people will pick up, not just these texts, but also the, the other, uh, um, the other memoirs that are out there because there's, there's just so much. There's almost, there's more, there, there are more memoirs out there than one can write about in one lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> no, <clears throat> there's a lot of, a lot of memoirs out there. Um, yeah. And these are the memoirs you looked at were really, really beautiful. Um, and so you mentioned this before too, um, you have a degree in creative writing and, you know, the book is beautifully written. Um, and so you, you can almost see the, uh, the wordsmithing um, and the care that went into you, you producing the text. And I wondered if you could share anything about your writing process, um, your practice of wordsmithing, writing inspiration. Um, yeah, I wondered if you could tell us anything about writing um, or writing the book uh, that you could share with us. Well, I, I think my writing process is fairly conventional. Um, you know, I prefer to write, you know, anytime between uh, 6 a.m. and 3 p.m. And I tend to line edit as I compose and I tend to um, revise each section of an article or a chapter and before moving on to the next section. And for me, uh, um, the cadence and the rhythm is really important. Um, so I often like, you know, read passages out loud, you know, checking for errors and, you know, the logic, the tone, you know, the rhythm, the cadence. And, um, and these are like some practices that I teach to my students too. you know, I try and get them to adopt some of these, some of these practices as well. And, uh, the text to speech function is really helpful, especially for catching typos. You know, you don't, and even though I do all this, I don't catch everything. And um, so a typical writing day for me, as I said, six to six to three, I can't really write after three. My mind is just not, you know, ready to write um, three to ten. Um, that's when I'm usually like doing research, um, doing either reading and or doing research, you know, finding texts that I need to read and annotate and, uh, and or actually reading those texts and preparing the notes that I need to do the writing for the next day. And that's, that's pretty much how a typical writer day uh, goes for me. As far as like the wordsmithing, you know, coming out of a creative writing, you know, background, you know, I specialized in, in prose. Uh, um, so fiction, short fiction and, and personal essay. But, you know, we also had to take courses in poetry. So this is that, that attention, you know, at the sentence level is really important for me. And I'm also at a, at a larger level, I would say a plain language advocate. So I tried to write the book so that it's accessible for the most part, you know, to undergraduates at two and uh, four year colleges, because I spent a good amount of my um, teaching career in higher ed in the community college space. And so each chapter kind of open up with a, opens and closes with an introduction and a conclusion, you know, so students can kind of, you know, get the overview and the summary uh, quickly before, you know, going into the meat of the chapter and looking for specific details. And the conclusion in each chapter kind of introduces the topics and the thematic concerns of the next chapter. So the idea there is to like kind of build this narrative thread that pulls a re reader forward through the text, you know, from, uh, from chapter to chapter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you so much for that. 
Um, and so that that was the um, last question about the book. And so the final question is, um, now that the book is out in the world, what is the next project you're working on? Or, or what are you thinking about? Um, you know, what activities do you have on the horizon or, or in front of you? All right. So last year, um, in 2022, I co-guest edited a special issue of the journal The Black Scholar. And that issue focused on the concept of a post-soul Afro-Latinidad. And so I'm eager right now to continue exploring that concept in more depth. So that's the project that's probably most immediately on the horizon. But right now what I'm working on, um, I'm, like in the moment, um, is a sequel to an article that I published in, I think it was 2020 about uh, immigration and ethnic cleansing motifs in Afrofuturist short stories. And um, I focused on two short stories by uh, uh, Ray Bradbury and Derek Bell, Derek Bell being the father of critical race theory. So I've always uh, you know, been looking for the time to get back and write that sequel to that, to that article. So that's what I'm working on now. I have a stack of uh, books over my desk <laughs> that I'm looking over here to the side. Um, that I need to dive into over the break to kind of get that article started. Wow. Well, that sounds great. So we wish you good luck with that work and um, it sounds very important and we'll look for it when it comes out. So um, we've got our fingers crossed for you. To, <laughs> to, to, we can't wait to see it. Um, so thank you so much for sharing uh, with with us about your book. Um, I'm Reagan Gillum. I've been speaking to Dr. Trent Masiki, who is the author of the book, The Afro-Latino Memoir, Race, Ethnicity, and Literary Interculturalism, published by the University of North Carolina Press. Thank you so much for writing this book and for sharing it with us on the podcast. Uh, thank you, Reagan. Thank you for having me. This has been a real pleasure.